Our author and speaker today, Tyler Durbin. Tyler is a father of five children, lives in Laguna Beach. He's a former high school teacher, and he has reached over four million students throughout his career. He's an author of this bestseller, Counterintuitive. I tell you, I read this, I don't know, three years ago, and I told my son, fact check this, is this true? <laughs> and it was. Uh, and it'll be in the back and Tyler will tell you more about that. Everyone, Tyler Durbin. Um, thank you. One correction to the introduction, not her fault, but mine. We actually, Kristen and I actually have four great kids and this other kid. Um, <laughs> no, we actually have five pretty good kids. Um, they just take turns being jerks. Um, so we're in it with you, and uh, actually Kristen's here, which is pretty fun. Uh, we live in Laguna Beach, as you heard, and normally, like next week, I'm in Canada all week. And so it's just so fun to get up and drive here and be here and um, see some friends. So this is Kristen right here. This, um, She's my favorite. Okay, so um, my friends are continually doing this to me. Hey, Tyler, are you going to be up in the San Francisco Bay Area anytime soon? Invariably, the answer is yes, or Phoenix, or wherever it is. And I'll say, yeah, why? And they'll say, oh, good, because we have some friends who are teenagers just went nuts, and we told them you'd stop by and help. And I'm like, you told them this? And they're like, yeah, they'll feed you. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm a guy. Uh, medium rare ribeye, I'll show up. So I went to the end of a cul-de-sac, Danville, I don't know if you've heard of that little town in the Bay Area. All I knew at the end of this cul-de-sac was a house, and inside the house lived Linda and Rob and their 14-year-old daughter who was out of control. That's all I knew. And so I rang the doorbell, and uh, Linda answered the door. And she could fit into this crowd very well. She answered the door, uh, welcomed me in, as we walked into the kitchen, she said, hey, Tyler, um, my husband will be here uh, in a few minutes. He just called me stuck in traffic. But um, anyway, here's some lemonade. We sit down at the kitchen island. She slides some scissors aside, slides some lemonade toward me. And I thought we were going to small talk until Rob got there. That's not what she had in mind. She dove in immediately. She said, Tyler, I can't wait for Rob. She said, last Friday morning, I was chasing my daughter Heather around this kitchen island, screaming like a lunatic with those scissors in my hand. I was like, what happened? She said, it started upstairs, and I know I shouldn't have, but I'm just done. I'm sick of the disrespect. She came out of her bedroom, and I said, Heather, you cannot wear that top to school. Go change. And Heather said, why? What? She said, that's a cover-up for a bathing suit. You're not going to wear that over a bra. Take it off and put something else on. She said, Heather, look me in the eye and said, what are you going to do about it? I'm not doing that. Whatever. Turned her back and, turned her back and walked away. I said, you're kidding. She goes, no, it's pretty out of control. She said, I went after her. I knew I shouldn't have, but I went after her. She saw me coming. She started running. I started running. We ran down the stairs. So we get to the kitchen. She starts going around the island. I was chasing her around the island. I saw the drawer was open. I saw the scissors, and I thought, that'll teach her. I'll cut it off. She'll never define me again. I said, well, what ended up happening? She said, she's really fast. <laughs> and then something changed in the room. I wish you could have been there. She looked down, and I could feel the embarrassment coming off of her, and I was struck by the fact that this woman's in incredible pain, overwhelmed. I mean, can you imagine? Or maybe you can. And she was wondering, I could tell, whether I was going to judge her. And 
I felt incredible empathy for her. She looked up at me to see my reaction, and I said, next time you're on a trip around the stairs. <laughs> and she laughed, she was relieved I wasn't gonna judge her, and uh, I began to empathize and say, I'm sorry for what you're up against, but we were interrupted because the screen door opened and in walked Rob. And as soon as I saw him, I knew he didn't want to be there. Why? He's a man. Uh, women, thank you for coming tonight today. We knew you would come. You always show up to these things. Uh, dads who are here are proud of you. We're seeing an upsurge of men showing up for these kinds of things. Uh, on behalf of the men who are here, if, if, if they're in a relationship with a woman, I want to say something to the women. If you're in a relationship with a man and you hand us a book, like on marriage or romance or something like that, we know what you mean. But you might as well just say, you're a failure, read this, right? And so you can imagine how Rob must have felt walking in there with a stranger in his kitchen to tell him how to raise his daughter. He was kind, he was polite, he smiled, greeted me, kissed his wife, sat down, looked at the scissors and said, she told you? I said, yes. And then I switched it up on them. I tricked them. I said, hey, you guys, um, I spent most of my life in Hawaii, my adult life. Would it be okay if we didn't sit and talk here? What do you say we go for a walk? I love being outside. You can see the relief wash over Rob's face. And um, so he went to change quick out of his scrubs and to come back. And uh, I, I want to tell you I had a secondary agenda for why I wanted to go for a walk. I told them the secondary part later. I had a hidden agenda, and it had nothing to do with wanting to be outside. I love being outside. It's one of the reasons I love this town. I love the schools because kids got to be outside going all over. It's, it's an amazing community to be in. As you know, that's why you live here. And for the people who just moved here, raise their hand, welcome. We're so glad you're here. It can be overwhelming to move to a new town. And these, there's people, I don't know all of them. Some of them I'm sure aren't very friendly, but most of these people are incredibly friendly. So yeah, get involved. We moved here about well, six, seven years ago. Anyway, so um, we just love being here. I want to tell you the real reason I wanted to go for a walk with Lyndon Rob. But before I do that, I need to mention this. If you have a child who is approaching puberty, even if they're in elementary, actually raise your hand if you have a kid in elementary school. Put your hand up. Okay, a bunch of you. Awesome. This is going to be so helpful as you uh, create a culture in your home. Secondly, uh, how about middle school? Raise your hand if you got, okay, some of you have more than one kid. And how about high school? Some of you have too many kids. Okay. Um, yeah, don't do that. Um, Kristen and I have a blended family. We have three left at home. We have a senior at the high school. That's Caleb. Um, he's, he's our easiest kid. Shut up, you have a favorite kid. Anyway, and then, then we have Brooke, who's uh, 15 and a half in the high school, and then we have little Jake. He's our adopted son, Filipino, um, and he's over at El Moro in fifth grade. Um, so we're in this, this thing. And, and um, anyway, the reason I mention all that is to let you know that today what I'm gonna be doing is I'm gonna be helping you prepare for the teenage years and helping you walk through them with sanity and joy and hopefully a lot of laughter around your table. But I want you to know where the content I'm going to be giving you comes from because it's a very atypical source. Uh, I was excited when Linda was sharing how overwhelmed she was because I knew I had solutions. And it's not because I'm smart, it's because I have a very unique opportunity. And here's the opportunity. Everything I'm going to be sharing with you today comes from this unique source. When I speak to students, um, I spoke to almost 20,000 students in the month of August, most of them middle school and high school. 
typically after I speak, students will stand in line to talk to me and they will tell me just routinely, Tyler, my best friend doesn't know this. Would you, can I tell you something? And so I hear things teenagers, preteens never tell anybody. I used to think I must have a special gift, you know, because they'd open up to me. Then I just realized I don't know their friends, parents, or teachers, and I'm going to leave town. So I'm a safe resource. It happened yesterday. I was up in, uh, where was I yesterday? Mission Viejo. I don't have a good brain. She does. Um, so I got to speak to several kids. In fact, one girl wanted to speak to me after the morning assembly, and she couldn't. And I did parents last night there, and she walked from her house to be there so she could talk to me afterwards, go through some hard things. Her dad's not involved in her life. So anyway, I hear these great things. I started noticing that I was learning things that I never learned in my master's program. I never learned as a former teacher. I never learned in the counseling study. I never learned in a book. And that's why I'm excited to be with you today, because we're here to give you solutions and hope and give you a bigger way to look at your role in your kid's life and to understand what their needs really are. Well, the reason I wanted to go for the walk is this. It's a little piece of research that really changed the game for Kristen and I with our family. Um, now, I don't know if you're going to believe this, and if you don't, I can get you the data, but it has been proven that sometimes males and females misunderstand each other. <laughs> I know, isn't that weird? Um, I knew you wouldn't believe it. So what these smart social scientists did is they got together and they thought, what if we could figure out how to bridge the gap? What if we could find out how females communicate with each other, how males communicate with each other, we could write some books, help people make a lot of money. They had three books that went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. One of them is called Gender and Discourse. It's a, a kind of a tedious clinical book, but in the middle is this golden piece of um, uh, data and research that I wanted to share with you. And it's the reason I wanted to go for a walk with Linda and Rob. Here it is. What they did is they thought, let's start young. We'll get girls to show up to a friendship study with their best female friend. We'll get boys with their best male friend. All that are knows it's about friendship. So they decided to start young. They wanted to learn how girls and boys communicate with their peers at an early age. So they got girls who are 6, 12, 16, and 25 to be involved in the study. Boys 6, 12, 16, and 25. And if you were in the study and you showed up, they would say this to you. Hey, we're so grateful you're here. It's our fault. We screwed up. We're running a little late. Would you do us a favor, if you don't mind, maybe 30 minutes or so, if you go grab a seat in that room, um, there's a couple chairs, we'll come and get you when we're ready. Well, you're smart because, you know, what was in that room was the study. Because human beings, when we know we're being observed, we change our behavior. You ever look at a rearview mirror and see that California Highway Patrol officer? You get 10 and 2, right? Anyway, so, watch. The girls went in, and there was two chairs. In fact, I'll grab these two chairs to help me. There was two chairs side by side facing a wall. And what happened with those chairs uh, was fascinating because what the kids didn't know is there were over 30 high-tech miniature video cameras recording every potential angle. There was a two-way mirror. The experts are sitting back there. They have their checklists, their computers. And they're looking to see how do girls communicate, how do boys communicate at those different ages. Unobserved, the kids wouldn't know that they were being observed. The girls all walked in and the researchers got something they were not counting on. They did not have a box to check for this, that it was a game changer. Every female walked into the room and did the same thing, one of two things. And it was different than what the males did. Every female walked in, saw the chairs, didn't know they were being watched, and they either turned the chairs to face each other, sat down face to face, and talked. Talk, 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 talk,
By the way, the females said four times more words during the study than the males did. I'll explain why in a moment. There's a very good reason for it. If the girls didn't turn the chairs before they sat down, watch. They sat down on the chairs as they were, and within about 30 seconds, they turned their bodies, sat on the leg, and faced each other, and talked. Talk, 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 Anyway, okay. The males came in and did something different. This is what got the researchers' attention. It didn't matter where they did this study, on the planet, the ages, Every male did something different than the females, and it was the exact same thing. The boys all walked into the room, saw the chairs, sat down, looked at the wall. Every once in a while, they'd mumble something. From time to time, they'd get a little fraction of eye, eye contact. Every once in a while, they'd hit each other, bang, right? And so the researchers saw this. They started keeping track. And when they discovered that every male did that, Every boy, every boy sat shoulder to shoulder. Every female sat face to face. Of course, the conclusion of this research teaches us that females feel most comfortable face to face in communication. Males feel most comfortable shoulder to shoulder. I'll prove it to you from your own life in a moment. I was skeptical of this research until I realized the most significant conversations I've had with my sons have been in the car. In the car. Why? Shoulder to shoulder. I wanted to go for a walk with Lyndon and Rob because Lyndon had already opened up and I wanted Rob to be in the best position to open up as well. I'm going to move this thing because it's right in your way. That's terrible. You're going to get a neck ache. Here, we'll do that. Good. You're like on a school, school district thing, right? We all you to have a neck ache, okay? You got enough headaches. Okay, all right, watch. So, so here's what happens. Oh, a fascinating thing happens with females. Watch me. This will ring true to you. When females are comfortable, they're face to face. When females get upset with somebody, what do they do? Don't, no, I'm done. I don't, don't even talk, talk to my hand, right? Females go shoulder to shoulder when they're men. Males, exact opposite. When we're comfortable, we're shoulder to shoulder. When we get upset with somebody, what do we do? You want a piece of this? Face to face in the male world is confrontation. Notice, not better or worse, but we're different. The way we're wired is different. And we need to acknowledge this. And it's important. Christian, uh, like Jakey, he's like all testosterone. He's like a six pack when he was in like third grade. He eats donuts and he's got a, I hate him. Anyway, so. Watch what happened. Christian would go in to discipline him in the bedroom and she'd be, and she'd be frustrated. And everything I'm going to say about Kristen today, she's given me permission to, by the way, because I'm scared of her. Okay, so uh, I'm really not. I can take her. Okay, so uh, did I say that out loud in front of important people? Okay, so what happens is this. Uh, hang with me. My brain doesn't work in a regular way. Um, she would go in the room, and I would hear her frustrated, going, Jake, don't look at me like that. Take that scowl off. Jake, that is disrespectful. Do not look. And she'd come out all frustrated. And then I'd go in, and it would go really well. And I'd think... Well, I do have a best-selling parenting book, you know. I, no, she's so much smarter than me. She figured it out. She goes, Tyler, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong. I said, what do you mean? She said, you know that research. She was going in, and as a female, she was trying to resolve conflict the way females do. She was going in face-to-face. -face, and in Jake's little male brain, although he couldn't articulate it, he would feel like that was a confrontation, so he would steal up. And he would, you know, and that's, I'd go in, and I'm just a guy, I'd sit on the bed next to him, look at the floor, and go, so Jake, what's going on? And pretty, pretty quickly, he would melt into me. Caleb, who's now almost 18, and um, he, uh, a number of years ago, maybe four or five, six years ago, went through a hard time, but he wouldn't talk about it. I happened to be on the road, and Kristen tried a couple of times to get Caleb to open up about what was going on inside of him. 
He's a very sensitive soul, super proud of the kid, um, but he just wouldn't talk about it. And then Kristen remembered the research. She went into her, his room one night and sat on the floor in front of the dresser and said, hey buddy, come sit next to me. He said, why, why? She said, just sit next to me. He's like, that's weird, why? <laughs> and she said, just, just sit down. And she, he sat down and within a minute, burst into tears and opened up. Why? Shoulder to shoulder. It makes a profound difference. I said I'd prove it to you from your own life. I, I was in Canada last February. Uh, it's cold up there. And I came down, and it was one of those unseasonably warm weekends. Table Rock Beach was, was packed. I went to jump in the water, came out, and saw something I'd never seen, noticed before. The beach was packed, and there were three distinct groups of girls, I don't know, high school or college, maybe 10 or 12 girls, and they had laid, in each of the groups, laid their towels down in a flower petal pattern, and they're lying on their stomach, up on the elbows, with their heads toward the middle, talking, and it dawned on me, I've never seen a group of guys on the beach do this once in my life. Why? Face to face. So if you want to connect with somebody of the opposite gender, we've got to keep these things in mind. What I want to do is I want to come back to Rob in a moment. I want to give you these components today that I, I think will be the most helpful for the use of our time. What time are we supposed to be done? 10? 10? 10.15? Okay, I want to honor your time and I'm hungry. Okay, so we'll get out of here on time. So what happens is this. Um, I want to talk about communication for a few moments. Uh, to understand, because one of the things we all want is to be close to our kids. I mean, that's what I want. I want to walk in the room and have my kids stand up and salute and say, Captain, my captain, you know? That's what, isn't that what we all want? I want my, my kids to wear a t-shirt to school with my face on it that says, my dad, my hero, right? We want that kind of intimacy, but what you're going to discover today, and this is important, what you're going to discover today is the way we build intimacy with our kids as they move through puberty and beyond is counterintuitive. It goes against the way we build intimacy in any other relationship in our lives. We'll get there. But a heart of any connection with any human being has to do with communication. So I want to give you some hints of things that high school students tell me about their frustrations with their parents. And again, if you just have elementary school kids, you're the ones who are in luck today because you get to establish and maybe alter the culture of your home to prepare for the teenage years. If you already have teenagers, you're screwed. Okay, so, um, no, this will be super helpful to you too. And we'll give you a strategy of how to turn things around. But in this world of communication, um, a teenage boy told me this, um, I guess it was three weeks ago. I was in Denver, Colorado, and I just finished speaking. He waited to talk to me, and he was talking about having a problem with his mom. And, by the way, if your kids are rebellious, this is what I hear from rebellious kids. They say this to me regularly. Tyler, I just, my parents and I, we fight all the time. It's just all argument, slam doors. And then they'll say, I just want to be close to them, but I don't know how. So even rebellious kids want to be connected to us. And uh, this boy said, uh, things are really bad. And I said, well, how about this? How about you go to your mom, and in any human relationship, the way we find to get them to move towards us is to move towards them in humility. So I said, what if you apologize to your mom? And he said, Ugh, I hate apologizing to my mom. I said, why? He said, she never believes me. And I knew why, and I'm going to tell you why. What happens is females resolve conflict differently than males do. And I want to share that with you quickly on this whiteboard. Um, can you see it? It's right here? Okay, here we go. Um, better speakers do stuff on the, like PowerPoint and stuff, but I'm you know, not that good. Okay, so 
Females resolve conflict in a very interesting pattern. And I'll do it up top here. Um, things are good at the top, things are bad at the bottom. Females get into conflict in a certain pattern and they get out of it in a certain pattern. <laughs> so, I can't do that again. All right, so, so this is the pattern, uh, the females. Uh, first of all, everything's great, they're face to face. Someone gets mad at somebody else, they go shoulder to shoulder. They turn away from each other, as we've already said. And then, they will stop talking to each other. Now, I said earlier that females use four times more words on a given routine day than a male would use. Right here, I want to tell you why. Males, we do one thing when we communicate. And it's very straightforward. It's different than females. We just transfer information. I got something on my head, I want to put it in your head, I'm done. Picture a glass of water and an empty glass. If this is a guy and this is you, they just want to pour that information into your head, put the glasses down and walk away. Okay, it's a very simple process. Females are great at transferring information, but females do two things males don't regularly do. The first thing females do that's not typically male, after transferring the information, is, and while doing that, they will actually talk about how they feel about the information, those emotional words. And then, secondly, they will do something that's very uncharacteristic for males, although there are exceptions, is females will figure out how they feel by talking about the information. They will, females have been known to actually contradict themselves within the context of the same conversation because they're trying to figure, they're putting on like different emotions. Is this how I feel? Maybe it is, or well, maybe he is a jerk, right? Whatever it might be. And so this is confusing to males because like, you know, we don't do that. And, and so, and I, I'm terrible at this because Kristen and I will have a disagreement and, and she'll say something and then she'll say something that contradicts it and like her girlfriends are great. She could say it and figure it out and contradict herself in that, like maybe this is how I feel, maybe this is how, and her girlfriends are like, oh, okay, oh, yeah, uh-huh, oh, no, that makes sense. Me, I'm just like, you know, make up your mind and we'll have an argument and I'll go, well, oh, hold on one second. You just said this, but 10 minutes ago you said this, which is it, right? Which isn't fair to me because I know the research, because she's a girl, she gets to figure it out as she talks through it. Males don't do that. So what happens in the conflict, they've gone shoulder to shoulder, they've stopped talking, and then this happens. It has been proven that sometimes when one girl is mad at a second girl, she'll actually talk to a third girl about the second girl behind her back. <laughs> I knew that would surprise you. And so, watch. So they've got to talk, and they've got to talk, and talk, and talk, and talk. Oh, that's what she said? Oh my gosh, she shouldn't have said that. I've got a secret too. And they get to the bottom, and it's really bad. And then what happens next is very beautiful. I'm going to do this quickly. What happens next is one girl will turn to the other girl, look at her, and say, hey, I'm sorry. And the other girl will typically go, no, I'm sorry. And so they say sorry, and then they will touch each other. Research indicates at that point they would hug each other and then they will talk about their feelings. They will touch and then they will talk and talk and talk and open every file folder within that file folder and circle back and talk and talk and get to the top and say, let's promise to never be at each other ever again. They'll hug and everything's good, you know, for a week. Okay, so let me, let me show you the male chart. I'll actually do it just below here because it's very different. We need to understand it. This, this is the male chart. Sorry if you can't see the bottom half, I'm going to need the whole thing, but here it is. This is the male chart of resolving conflict. It goes like this. I'm mad at you, it's all cool. Okay, that's our chart. All right, just two dots. Um, it's a quick thing. 
I, I borrowed quickly. I borrowed my friend's chainsaw and my, uh, I borrowed it. I didn't really need it, but I had a branch. I could have just dragged it and dumped it, but I wanted to feel like cool. Uh, and my friend can actually like make things with his hands. If you make things with your hands, I'm jealous of you. My friend can drive by a building, Alan, he can say, baby, I built that. All I get to say to Kristen is, I said words there. You know, it's not that exciting. So I wanted to play with the chainsaw. I did a dumb thing. I left it out all night, just like he told me not to. It got rusty. I had to go apologize. He loves his chainsaw. I went to his house, Plantation Cottage, and I said, hey, Al, you home? He said, yeah, he's in the kitchen. And I stepped into their house. I said, I'll just wait here. My shoulder facing the kitchen door. This is how males apologize. He came out. I glanced at him. I didn't go face to face. That's confrontation. I just glanced at him, and I said, hey, Al, I owe you an apology. He had a dish rag, he threw it over his shoulder, and he went like this. What'd you do to my chainsaw? <laughs> I said, I'm an idiot, just, I'll go to Home Depot, get you a better one. I'm just so stupid. My best friend went, ugh! And that does not mean I want to hug you and touch your hair. And so he did this, and then just typical male behavior, he turned around and stormed out of the room. I did not follow him. Why? I'm a guy. I knew he didn't want to chit-chat about his emotions at that particular moment. I just let him go. Now, mothers are famous for going, oh, no, you don't. You come back here. We're going to figure this out, right? And then that guy, that guy would grow up and marry somebody, and his wife would come on back here. What are you, my mother? You know, anyway, so... What happens is this, I let him go, he's in the kitchen working through his emotions physically, slamming drawers, cabinets, the refrigerator, making a smoothie on a higher speed than necessary. He finally comes back out, I'm still facing my shoulder, I just said, Al, I'm really sorry. He had two glasses in his hand, and he said, you know what, don't worry about it. You want a smoothie? And it was done. We didn't hug. We didn't touch. We didn't talk about our feelings. I didn't say, how did you feel when I said the word rust and chainsaw in the same sentence? And nothing, we were just done. So you can see the problems that this can cause in, in our relationships with our kids or, or other people. Um, and that boy, he didn't feel like his mom believed him. Why? Because this is how that conversation probably went. Here's the boy, here's the mom. Watch my body language. He's shoulder to shoulder because he's going to say sorry. She's shoulder to shoulder because they've got some problem between them. Here we go. He'll go, hey mom, listen, I'm sorry about that, that whole thing. I'm just sorry. And she'll go, well, thanks for saying that. And he'll say, you're welcome. And then she'll say, so like what was going on there with all that stuff? And he'll go, um, just said sorry, can we just kind of... <laughs> and she'll go, no, you were so upset. There was, I just want to understand what you're feeling and everything. Because I don't want you to be upset. I want to understand so we can figure it out so it doesn't happen again. And he'll go, mom, this is why I don't like a pilot. Just, I said sorry, can we just drop it? And she'll go... Well, if you're sorry, and she has something good to say following that, but she doesn't get to say it, because when he hears, if you're sorry, he turns and goes, if I'm sorry, and he's facing her, and she thinks she's getting somewhere, but she's not. <laughs> if I'm sorry, and she'll go, well, maybe, maybe that tone of voice tells me you're not sorry. He'll go, well, you know what, maybe I'm not sorry. And he'll turn around and storm out, and she'll walk away going, I knew he wasn't sorry, right? Why? Just different, male, female, different, not better or worse, less or more beautiful, just different. And so when we talk to our kids, we need to understand, we need to approach it differently. If you have a child of the opposite gender, you need to enter into their world based on this. So moms, you need to resist the temptation to want more. Because what you're communicating to your son in that male world is, I don't really believe you, you've got to convince him. And he's going to get frustrated. And dads, we have to enter this world. This one. <laughs> I had to apologize. 
to Brooke. I had to apologize to my daughter because I hurt her feelings legitimately. I didn't mean to. I just kind of, I was frustrated. You ever been frustrated with your kids? You ever been both? Shut up. You have, right? You remember Linda chasing her daughter around the kitchen island? Okay, I think we would all be surprised if we knew how many of us in this room have done something like that with our kids. We just don't talk about that at lunch on Tuesday, right? We don't put that on Facebook. Ooh, hit your sister again. Click post, right? We don't do those kind of things. We paint this beautiful picture. You know, we don't sit at lunch and go, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so, I hate my son so much I went in his room and stole his money. Right? We don't tell those stories. We don't say those stories. Oh, you think that's bad? My daughter doesn't know it yet, but when she left for school, I spit in the back of her hair, right? We don't tell those stories. If you're laughing, it's because you've had those thoughts. But we're in this thing together. And so I had hurt Brooke's feelings. I was annoyed with the boys. Boys, we were arranging the room. Container store stuff, so expensive. That's just, don't shop there. And so, no, actually, it's very helpful, but I had spent too much money. And finally, an hour into it, we're, we're almost done. Brooke walks in, bless her heart. It's a few years ago. And she says, Appa. Appa's Korean, my wife. Um, so they call me Appa. And, and so, hi, Korean back there, too. I have a Korean friend. Um, so, yeah. That's more of a Korean name than Kristen. Okay, um, so what happened is this. I'm frustrated, Brooke comes in and goes, hey, Appa, why don't you put those things in there, those things in there, slide those things under there? And what I meant to say was, sweetheart, that's why I love you. you it's not even your room and you're coming in to try to help, but I think you've got to figure it out. Kristen saw it, what I actually did was this. No, we got it, and I went back to it, right? Didn't even realize, dumb guy, that I, I dismissed her like she was an important. Kristen goes, you better apologize. And I was like, oh my gosh, I did that. I had to go to her bedroom and knock on her door. And then I had to open the door. She's sitting on the bed. And what this means is I had to enter this world. And I had to bring her best chair up to her bed. And I had to sit facing her. And when I said, I'm sorry, you don't deserve that, I had to touch her knee. And then we had to talk about our emotions. For like seven minutes, we had to talk about our emotions. And then we hugged. And then I walked to the door and I turned back and said, good talk, and she went, like, oh, one more, okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. And I walked out the door and I was like, I'm so tired. <laughs> Why? Different. Not better or worse, just different. If we're gonna love our kids, we need to enter that world. One more thing about communication. I wanna challenge you, uh, and from this point on, some of the things I'm gonna tell you are gonna be cultural changes. Some of the things I'm going to share with you will not fit in the paradigm of how you see family and you see your relationship with your kids. What I'm going to share with you is a shift, a new way to look at things that comes from the things teenagers have told me they long for and need. And at this point, I need to just ask you to be willing to go, huh, maybe there's something to this, and I'm going to open my heart to it. Well, the first thing I'm going to share with you isn't cultural shifting, but it's a new way to look at communication. The greatest, or let me say this, one of the greatest ways of showing another human being that we care, and we want our kids to know we care. So how do we get them to talk to us and open up to us? They need to know that we care, and the, the greatest way to show someone you care is to truly listen. But I want to say to you, to truly listen to another human being is incredibly hard. It's hard work. Because think about it, to truly be present with another human being, what it means is we have to put aside our presuppositions, put aside our mental mass multitasking, 
we have to put aside our thoughts of where we think they're going and we have to resist the temptation to jump in and tell them how to fix it. We also have to resist the temptation to say those trite parental things that all of us say, our parents said. And, and to truly be present is really hard. Now I'm not suggesting you should truly be present for your kids all the time. You can't. You can't be truly present for anybody all the time. Uh, you'd be exhausted because that's exhausting work. But we have to look for key moments. Like if you have a, a kid in elementary school, you can't possibly be focused on everything they say. Because frankly, most of what they say is boring. Um, you know, Jake, he's eleven. He, when I'm alone with him, he will talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And I'm like, uh-huh, you've done this, uh-huh. Oh yeah, and I'm in the kitchen, uh-huh, yeah. And he'll go, he said this a while back, are you even listening? And I was so busted, and I went, rote memory. Yellow bicycle, he was talking. Oh yeah, no, I'm listening. You were talking about that kid with the bike? He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 great. So, we have to do that. But there are times, and as our kids get older, as, as well, there are times where we have to selectively listen and go, does this kid really have something to say? And be present. Because what we tend to do is not, and it's typical male behavior, is to just jump in and fix it. If Brooke comes home, went back when she was in middle school, it's like, how was your day? She goes, oh, I don't know, it's kind of hard. There's this couple group of girls, and a couple girls, they're kind of kind of being mean to me. Um, I don't know why they're mad at me, but they're saying stuff that's not true. And so all she wants is for me to go, hey, tell me more. Like, tell me. And for me to go, I'm so sorry. That must hurt your feelings. Tell me more how you feel. But what I do, typically, is I go, okay, what's the girl's name? <laughs> okay, what period is she in? Second period? Okay, the other girl's in second period? No, perfect. Okay, I want you to get there. Right in the beginning of the day, I want you to get there. And before the bell rings, just so she won't have time to say anything back, this is what you're going to say. A, B, and C. Okay, you understand? Come back and let me know how it went. And she walks away, I know, going, he doesn't care. <laughs> Why? Because I'm trying. Men do this with wives all the time. All they want is empathy. And here's the heart of true listening. Don't miss this. To truly listen, you need to empathize. But that's hard work. To say, what would it be like to be this child in their situation at this moment? Your feelings were hurt by a boy. You're in frickin' second grade. It's gonna get worse, right? That's what we think, because we know it is, right? But the truth is, in that second grader's world, that's the most pain they've ever felt, and pain is relative, and we need to really be present in that way. If we want our kids to open up to us, we wanna break past the noise and the screens, we need to show them that we care, and listening is one of the greatest ways to do that. Uh, if you have a question about any of this, I'll be hanging around afterwards, and so, you know, I'd be happy to talk more about that. Um, let me move forward. Let's get back to Linda and Rob. Um, because this is going to be the framework we're going to hang the rest of this stuff on. You got, i got to tell you, I am just so honored to get to be in my hometown and speaking to you today. Because I know that you love your kids. And it's such a huge thing that you show up this morning. I also want to say this. And I'm not kissing up. But I think it's so cool that the principals are here and the school board people are here. That is amazing. Because these... I would not want their job. I just would not. In fact, I'll go this far. And by the way, I'm not kissing up because if they never hire me, I'm cool. I got so much work, I don't need them. Okay, um, you know, they don't even have to like me, I'll be fine with it. But um, actually, I have a friend in one of them, uh, you know, the, the doctor from the high school, and he's a doctor. Anyway, um, he's so cool, I love the guy. But, um, and we stole him from Dana. Okay, so, uh, but you guys, thank you for coming. The biggest problem, uh, principals, I have friends who are principals, the biggest problem they have is with parents. 
They did not ask me to say this. In fact, they may wish I didn't say this. That the number one problem they have is with parents. Because parents don't understand the things I'm about to share with you. Parents are doing what their intuition tells them that they should do, but it's not good for kids, it's not good for the family, it's not good for schools, and it's not good for the culture. So here we go. This is the part where I'm going to open, hopefully, some things that you're going to go, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But just open your heart to it. I think it will ring true to you. By the way, what I'm about to share you, with you for the rest of our time are the things that helped Linda and Rob turn their relationship around with the daughter Heather. I'll jump to the end of that right now just so it's not hanging. A year after we had that conversation, they did two conversations with their daughter. They had two conversations you should have with your kids. I hope to get to both of them today. They had those two conversations and things changed. She started testing them, but they stood firm in the framework I'm about to give you. And a year afterwards, Rob called me all choked up. He goes, he said, you'll never guess what happened. I said, why? He goes, she broke up with that boy. And I was like, that's good, right? He's like, yeah, that's so good. And then he got more choked up and he said, when Linda asked why she broke up with him, Heather said, it's because I want to make, I want to date somebody more like that. So they had their daughter back. So we're walking down the street from their house. Let's pretend this chair is Linda and Rob's house. We leave, Rob opens up, and he says this, I don't blame Linda for the scissors. I said, why? He says, I've been avoiding my daughter for months because I'm afraid I'll say or do something I, resent, I regret. And then he said something Linda hadn't heard. He said, there's a family that lives down the street. We come to the end of the cul-de-sac to, to come home. Every day I drive past that home, and the truth is, I am jealous of those people. And Linda, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, but I routinely wish I could trade families. I wish that was my family. I said, how come? He said, they have three teenagers and their family is like perfect. And I thought, what I always think about when I hear about a perfect family, they're a Frankfurt drug cartel. <laughs> they're making meth in the tub. There are no perfect families. Um, I smiled at myself and they began to tell stories. We walked down the, their street. We get maybe eight, ten houses down their street and it was perfect. I couldn't have written this any better. As Linda's telling the story, we're interrupted by a voice to the right and the voice says, well, hi, Nate. And we look up, and I knew this was the family Rob was talking about. They're sitting on the front porch on a Friday evening with three teenagers, mom and dad, having dinner. Sweet happiness dripping from their silverware. Little gleams of light shining off their smiles. I hated these people instantly. The dad says, hey, we've got, we're having salad. we got plenty. Come on up. I'm thinking, salad? I don't trust anyone who eats salad on a Friday night. And, and Rob goes, no, we're just on a walk. And under his breath, he goes, can you see why I hate them? And I could. I looked at their mailbox to see if it said Stepford. Anyway, and so we keep walking. We go down, we're about 20 minutes out, we come back, and as we get to this house, a profound thing happened. Now, let's let this chair represent what we all want. Linda and Rob, we're living with something we don't want. And if you're here today and you're living with that, I promise you, there is always hope. There really is. There's answers and solutions. None of us want that, and maybe you're here today because you're afraid of that. This is what we all want. Now, I don't know if that family is great, but let's let this represent that. We get back to this house. Linda's wrapping up the last two sentences of a story, and Rob did an interesting thing. He looked at the house. Now, the family was no longer on the porch. I don't know, they were inside, or they'd gone to do a drug deal. I don't know. But they, he looked up, and he didn't know I was watching him, and he took a deep breath, sighed, looked at the ground, and shook his head, and went, <sighs> Linda finished. I said, hey, you guys, stop for a second. 
Rob, what was it? He said, well, oh. And he asked a profound question. He said, Tyler, I don't get it. I said, what? He said, we love our daughter at least as much as they love their kids. So how come we end up with that and they end up with that? Linda stepped forward and said, every decision we've made as parents, Tyler, has been because we love our daughter. So? And I looked at them on the street and I said, well, you guys get it, right? He said, what? I said, it's not about love. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, it's not about love. They said, how can it not be about love? I said, well, it's important to be nurturing and to listen and have empathy and to be present with our kids. All that is loving. But the answer isn't love. I said, every, and I explained that every family I've ever worked with in crisis with a preteen or a teenager, every single parent I've ever worked with, and I'm working with some right now, every single family, those parents love their kids enough to die for them. It's not about love. They said, well, what is it about? I said, well, let's walk towards your house. And we did. We had a while to go, a bunch of houses. And I said, let's let every step we take in that direction represent a parenting choice. Linda's very astute. She stopped and she said, hold on, you guys stop. So you're, say you're saying we ended up with the problems we have with Heather because we've made bad choices? And I really wanted that ribeye. <laughs> no, you know what was beautiful about that moment is Linda and Rob had something going for them. Linda and Rob were suffering. Our culture hates suffering and hates pain. We anesthetize to it, ourselves to it. We distract ourselves from it. Suffering is a gift. And you look back at your life, chances are the greatest lessons you've ever learned have been from the hard things you've gone through. And in our culture, there's this mentality that our role as parents is to protect our kids from suffering and to make it easy for them. I'll say this, uh, Caleb, when he was a freshman, it was years ago, had a long-term math substitute. And arguably, this guy wasn't going to be very good. And he wasn't going to be great. And Caleb really wanted to do well. And so he came home and said, oh, the substitute's really bad. And Chris and I were like, oh, we're sorry. And then a couple weeks later, a week and a half later, he goes, all my friend's parents are transferring them out of the class. Can you transfer me? And, and we could have made the call. Um, but we said, we looked at each other, exchanged a look, and nodded, and then I said, nope. He said, why? I said, we're not going to take you out of there. How come? That's not fair. And had to resist saying the thing that we all want to say when the kids say, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have to tell you what it is, do I? Because you said it. Because that makes it trite. That minimizes what Caleb's saying. Oh, I wanted to go, hey, buddy, wait till you grow up. You're going to discover how unfair life is. You know, this is a cakewalk. But what we decided to say is, Caleb, we're not going to transfer you. Because one day you're going to have a boss or a college roommate or a middle manager or a partner who's going to be not good at what they do. And so what we're going to do is leave you in that class, even though it's going to be harder, because we're going to help you figure out how to make this relationship work with you and this substitute, this long-term guy, because that's what you need to learn. We're going to teach you how to make this a win-win, how to win him over and how to still learn at the same time. So Caleb came out of that class and did pretty well, and the, the new teacher came in, and the regular teacher, and it was fine. And you can't have perfect long-term subs, and that's the future of life. You can't have perfect everybody who you work with. You get the point. Early suffering is less painful suffering. Linda and Rob thought their job was to protect Heather from all suffering. And it seems intuitively correct, doesn't it? Well, watch me. I told Linda and Rob this. This is visual. You have to look up for this. What I told Linda and Rob was that, yeah, they, bad choices take parents in this direction, 
And good choices take us in this direction. It's pretty obvious, right? But here's the trick. No parent does this. Bad choice, bad choice, bad choice. Check it out. We're screwing up our kids. Call grandma! Right? Nobody does that. They smile on the street. And then I said, this is how it works. And I turned. And I looked at the good house. And I said, we're all looking this way. All of us want that. It's just that some of us are doing this. And we don't realize it until our kids go through puberty and what used to work doesn't work anymore. But, but it gets deeper. You and I, every human, we make the choices we make because we believe or hope that that choice will take our lives in a good direction. Right? A little philosophy here. Like, you came today, I don't know why you came, but you came today because you hoped coming today would make your life better, or you believed it would, or you wouldn't have shown up. You may have come because you're in pain and you want solutions. You may have come because you have fear about the future. You may have come just because you're a great parent and you want to be better and you're open to anything. You may have come because you had a fight with your spouse before leaving to come. And if you're here with your spouse, then maybe they said to you right when you're about to leave, well, yeah, in the middle of the fight, well, I'm going to that parenting thing. And you're like, crap, now I've got to go too or I'm going to be in trouble for that. Whatever reason you came here today, you came because you hoped or believed it would take your life in this direction. But here's the trick. Watch me. You know the guy in jail for stealing a car because of his heroin addiction so he could part it out and get cash for more heroin? That guy in jail, watch me, stole that car because he believed stealing would take his life in this direction, in his framework. Here's the key. He was just wrong about what he believed. If he believed he'd get arrested and put in jail, he wouldn't have stolen the car. And here's the key moment for us. We love our kids, but what's so important isn't our love, although that is important and valid, What's more important is how we see our role in our kids' lives. Because if we have confusion about our role in our kids' lives, we're more likely to be inconsistent. I told Lyndon and Rob when we were cutting through the ribeye, I said, can I tell you a 40-second story? He said, yeah. I said, okay, when I was in college, I had a summer job painting dorm rooms. And uh, on my first week, I went over to this like, styrofoam thing with water in it, and I was pouring water. It wasn't break. I shouldn't have been doing it. But the big boss, not my boss, but the big boss walked through at that moment, saw me drinking water, and, and, and came over and thought I was so fired. And he said, hey, would you pour me some? And so I did. We talked for 14, maybe 16 minutes about a new sitcom we'd seen the night before starring Robin Williams called Mork and Mindy. And we laughed and talked, and I was thinking, this guy's awesome. And then, you know, he finished his thing, and then he walked away. And I thought, ah, oh, that's the best boss in the world. Next time I saw him, saw him we're walking. It was break. I'm with one of my buddies, taking our break. And he walks through, and he goes, hey, I don't pay you to drink water. Get back to work. And he walked out, and I thought, that guy's moody. The next time I saw him, he came over. We talked about working mini for maybe eight minutes. I don't know. And I went along with him. And he walked away, and I thought, that guy's a jerk. Why? Because you never know where you stood. Linda leaned forward and said, oh my gosh, that's what I need to have her all the time. You see, Linda didn't have clarity on her role in her daughter's life, and so it was inconsistent. It depended on how she felt at the moment or the circumstances. And this is what happened. Linda and Rob would say, this is the way it is. You don't talk to us like this. You have to respect, whatever it is. But then they want to be close to their daughter, right? And so what would happen is they would look the other way sometimes. Well, I don't want an argument today. I'm just too tired. I just want But then eventually it would build up inside of them, and they would explode on her. And she would look at him understandably and resent them. I didn't blame her for her resentment because she never knew where she stood because they didn't have clarity on their role. That's what I want to help all of us think through right now because how we see our role is incredibly important. So Linda and Rob were making a classic mistake in my experience. 
It's the same mistake almost every family I've ever worked with in crisis made, and it's this. They believe that, well, they had a child-centered home. They believed their job and their daughter's life was to have the adults who revolve their lives around the needs of their child. Are you with me for this? There's a cultural shift that has happened, and that cultural shift that happened was, um, it began in the 60s. Homes used to be adult-centered places where the lives of the adults didn't revolve around the wants and needs of the child. Oh, of course, they would, there's times where our kids absolutely need us to serve them, otherwise when they're little they will die. You know? uh, so we have to serve them. But when that doesn't change, what happens is we, we end up creating these homes that revolve around the needs of the kids. I'm just going to say it categorically. Child-centered homes are not good for the child, for the parent, for the school, for the culture. I believe the hope that America has is that... I was on a TV show in Canada, and um, it was one of those, like, what was it called? The social... It's like The View. And I was on the four million viewers, uh, and it was a cool opportunity. The next guest, by the way, was Hugh Jackman. Um, and I got to meet him, and some of the women are like, oh, <laughs> talk more about that. Um, in fact, I called Kristen, and she, I was like, you'll never guess who it was. Because he's... Uh, you know, free pass. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> if you don't know what that means, if you don't know what that means, I can't really help you. But okay, so, um, so he's our free pass. But anyway, I told him that, actually, and he goes, are we supposed to fight now? Anyway, um, he's a great guy. The first question they asked me was this. Um, do you think this whole thing about entitled young people has to do with parenting? My segment was nine minutes long, which is a long time for a TV segment. And I said, we don't have time. But I'll just say it, yes, categorically it has everything to do with parenting. And it comes back to what Linda and Rob thought. They thought their job was to make and keep their daughter happy, to protect her from suffering, to make home the happiest place in the world. They were trying to be miniature Walt Disney's and they were exhausted. And that worked when her, their daughter was little. But there's got to be a transition that happens. By the way, quick test. If you want to know if you have a child-centered home, here's the test. What happens if you're having an adult conversation and your kid walks into the room? If that adult conversation immediately comes to a screeching halt and becomes about the child, chances are you have a child sent at home. If they come in and they say, excuse me, and they wait until you address them, and you go, yeah, what was it? Okay, yeah, go ahead. And then you go back to your conversation, chances are you have an adult sent at home. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stop and there aren't times when we need to be interrupted by our kids, because there are. But it's, it's a mindset of how do we see our role in our kids' lives. And here's another test. Who holds the remote control when your family's all sitting in front of the TV? Who's in charge of that? Or how are you getting the car? Who's in charge of the music? Right? <laughs> Fortunately, our kids have an eclectic taste. They like the Beatles. And if they didn't like the Beatles, they wouldn't be allowed to live in our house. Um, there's no pressure, but they don't eat without the Beatles. And so, but like they listen to all this kind of music. But Brooke, she's great. She loves music. She's so musical. Musical. She sings the whole deal. Then one time I picked her up from dance, and she gets in, in the little Mini Cooper and turns on the radio, and then just and I turned off the radio. She goes, "What?" I said, "You can't just come into this world and make it about you." We're working with that on Brooke, right? Um, because. She's a very big, gregarious person who forgets that there's other people. And so, um, but she's had a huge shift in the last few months. But because we love her, we have to once in a while push a little reset button and say, hey, it's not about you. Make sense? So, Linda and Rob were making this classic mistake where they were trying to protect their daughter from all suffering and make her happy and be her best friend. But they were wishy-washy and inconsistent because it depended on how they felt. 
when they brought their daughter home, this is what we do. I'm going to erase this here. Um, when we bring our kids home from the hospital, we essentially do two things. Sorry, this is taking time here. Uh, we essentially do two things with our kids, right? We, uh, you remember pie charts? Some of you use them. Okay, for those of you who can't see, I'm just going to do a pie chart. All right, it's a circle, and I'm putting a line right down the middle. When we bring our kids home from the hospital in the following years, we do two things. One, two. Now hang with me for this. We do these two things, and they're important that we do them. Nothing wrong with them. We need to do them. The first thing we do, number one, is we provide. We give them food, clothing, we keep them warm, diapers, the whole deal. As they start crawling, we continue to provide. And then we also, secondly, we do number two, which is protect. Right? We protect our kids. When they start crawling, we shut the door or so they don't go in the into the street. We put a gate at the top of the stairs. We put those little plastic things in the plug holes for our first child. <laughs> if you've had more than one kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know, they drop, the first one drops their pacifier, you're like, oh my god, burn it! I've got another one! And we shove it in their mouth. The next kid drops it, we're like, oh, crap. Shove it back in their mouth, you know? Our third kid, we're like, I don't know where it is. Go suck my truck tire. It's the same thing. You're driving me nuts. Right? So we get a little bit more liberal as the kids get older. So we protect and we uh, provide. But what happens, and this is key, as our kids approach puberty, we need to be doing something else. We need to put a third piece in the pie. And this is going to, I'm going to state the obvious here. But watch. To include this third piece in the pie, Look what happens to piece number one and two. As we put in number three, providing and protecting has to get smaller. We have to do less providing and protecting to do number three, which is, I'll write it here, which is to prepare. Our whole job is to prepare our kids' lives so they're ready to live life without us. Make sense? Because one day, that's all there is. We've done what we can do, and we can influence them, but we, it can't just be about protecting and providing. Here's the problem with this. As they get older, piece number three has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so by the time they're ready to leave home, we do very little providing and protecting. And it's all about, all about preparing. But the catch with this is, and this is a little shift for the way you think maybe, it was for me, one and two, feel really good to us. Doesn't it feel great? Because that's what we're made for. And we love it when they're little. Because we have to do this. This human being will literally die if we don't do this. Kristen and I now have a grand, two grandsons. And we just went back east. She's 40 and has grandkids. I love it. Way to go, Tyler. Anyway. Um, so watch. So we have this little two, this little baby we held. His name is Nate. And he's just this two weeks old. He's so cute. And it's cute because like you tip him this way, his head goes this way. Tip this way like this. I was like, do you love your granddad? Yes. No, I didn't do that. Anyway, so it's just this vulnerable little baby. But that feels so good. And as they continue to grow, it feels so good to protect and provide. But um, we can't prepare our kids unless we're willing to do less of these two things. And so here's an illustration, uh, an example. Kristen called me uh, years ago, and she, Caleb was only, I think, fifth, sixth grade. And she said, I've been doing a dumb thing. I said, what? You're so smart. What did you do? She goes, I've been taking Caleb to school, and I drop him off, and he gets out of the car and goes through the open window, Mom, I'm so sorry. Please don't be mad. And he means it when he says it. That's the one who means it. And he says this, 
I forgot my lunch again. And so what she would routinely do is she'd give him a lecture and then go home, get his lunch, and bring it back to school. I said, you've been doing that? She goes, yeah. I said, I can't believe it. What are you going to do now? And she goes, I'm not doing it anymore. I said, cool. Tell me, call me when that happens. I want to hear about it. And she goes, okay. And, and so a few weeks later, the phone rings, and it's Kristen, and she's kind of choked up. And she's not getting to be choked up about little things, so I thought it must be a huge deal. But it does make sense. Watch what happens. What happened that morning, she told me, that Caleb's lunch thing. I said, why are you choked up? And she explained, what happened is he got out through the open back window of the car. He said, Mom, please don't be mad. I'm so sorry. And she said, listen, Caleb, um, I'm sorry, buddy, but I'm not going to go home and get your lunch today. And he said, you're not? She said, no. Why? It's your job to remember your lunch, not mine. You've got to be responsible for that. He goes, well, can I have some money? She said, we give you allowance. Do you have any of that? He said, no. She goes, well, I guess you're not going to eat today. He goes, really? She goes, yeah, I'm sorry, buddy. She starts to pull away. And everything was fine till then for her heart. Until she started to pull away, Caleb moved to the front window. <laughs> and it's a school zone, so as he pulled away, he went like this. She <laughs> as she accelerates, he literally said these words. Why won't you help me? Oh my gosh. Everything inside my wife is built to protect and to provide, and to not, and, but, but here's how smart she is. She's got to prepare him, and unless she wants to be bringing lunch to him in college, she's got to start preparing him. Does this make sense? But it doesn't feel good to us, it's counterintuitive. And here's the fact, the things that take us in this direction, many of them, when it comes to preteens and teenagers, if not most of them, are completely counterintuitive. It made sense to Linda and Rob to want to be their daughter's best friend. Doesn't that seem logical? But as I said, you build intimacy with preteens and teenagers differently than any other relationship in your life. And here's why. Even the most sophisticated teenager is like barbecue chicken. Oh, we're done. We're going to end early. Um, no, let me finish that thought. Teenagers are like barbecue chicken. Just because they look done on the outside doesn't mean they're done on the inside. And teenagers have lingering childhood needs that will not go away until their frontal lobe stops growing in their mid to late 20s. And if you're preparing an elementary school kid and you're looking into the future, what's going to happen if you haven't had the experience yet is all of a sudden their voices, their bodies, their minds are going to change. Their frontal lobe is going to get into a growth spurt that is unparalleled in their life. They're going to start seeing nuances. They're going to start seeing the gray areas. Elementary school, it's all easy. There's good guys and bad guys. They love their teachers. Why? Because it's my teacher. Hey, Mom, it's Teacher Appreciation Day. Can we buy her a car? Right? That's, then they get to middle school, it's like, I hate my history teacher. Right? Why? Because they're starting to see that even good people have bad in them. And their world gets really complicated. Their peers have more influence. They start to see hypocrisy. And the reason they're so sensitive to hypocrisy is because they see it in themselves and in their friends. And it makes them feel very insecure. So they make this giant transition, and now every all it's game changing. Everything has changed. And so in high school and, and middle school, they need to have us, we need to have clarity that they are not done on the inside. I watched the homecoming at the high school, and the student body president um, won homecoming king, right? What's his name? Cal. 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 Right. Cal's brother, I guess, did that before, right? I think, is that right? Yeah, Cal's family here? See, they don't need this. Anyway, um, 
guys are going to be this much fun. I really did. Um, so, so um, then I watched that kid, and I thought, he looks done. You talk to him, he would feel done. He's articulate, he's smart, he's a leader, he wears deodorant. He seems to be completely fit, <laughs> but he's not. He's got lingering childhood needs, and here's the key. The greatest felt need that kid has is the need to feel safe. One of the first students to hire me to speak at a school over, uh, just over the hill here. Um, it's a Canyon High School that's the one here in Orange County. This is 20-some years ago. I met this kid at a leadership conference, and he was sophisticated. He hired me, he booked me, he brought me in, he introduced me to 2,200 students. Afterwards, I was telling the kids, he waited. I thought he was going to walk me to the car. He did. His name was Josiah. He said, Tyler, could I talk to you? I said, oh, okay, okay. We went up to the top of the stairs, and, and he said, sometimes I leave my cell phone on in meetings, and I feel really bad about that. I said, that's horrible. That's socially just horrible. I don't know who that phone was, but that was fun. Okay, so we get to the top of the stairs. I got in trouble a lot when I was in high school. Can you sense that? From me? Yeah. Anyway, so the top of the stairs, uh, even though I'm sorry, bleachers. He goes, can we go up there? We went up the bleachers, higher than the top of his tent, against the back wall. We sat down shoulder to shoulder. It was just intuitive. We hadn't done the research yet. And he leaned forward with his arms on his knees. And he said, Tyler, there's just something I need to tell you. Somebody. Can I tell you? I said, of course. And the first tear fell when he said, my dad doesn't love me. I said, well, what do you mean? What he said next was so counterintuitive that I couldn't, like when I got to my car, my rental car, after talking to him, I, I kept repeating it in my head. I got a gas receipt, I turned it over, and I wrote word for word what he said because it went so against what I thought a teenager would really want. This is when I started documenting what I was learning from teenagers. Here's what his answer was. When I said, well, what do you mean your dad doesn't love you? Quoting him, Josiah said, well, here's the thing. My dad lets me get away with pretty much everything. He buys me whatever I want. He never disciplines me. Isn't it weird to think that a teenager would want more discipline or ask for it when all they seem to want is more freedom? Counterintuitive. The reason, the reason he's saying that is because he's not done on the inside. He needs his dad to be clear that his dad is not his peer, but his parent. And I don't mean in an authoritative way, where authoritarian way, where his dad's just like, my way or the highway. He needs nurturing. He needs those things we talked about earlier, empathy, listening, all those things. But he needed his dad to be over him. Why? Because he's not done on the inside. He knows he needs someone stronger than him who's willing to take a stand and back it up. And, and what happens is it's confusing to us as parents because we so want to be close to our kids. But as I said, you build intimacy with, with preteens and teenagers differently than any other relationship in your life. And if you have little children and you're sitting here going, they're not teenagers yet, you know, I'm dealing with all different stuff. Oh, you're going to start dealing with this stuff soon. And that's the goal today, to help you prepare for that. The more you know ahead, the better. Um, there's always hope, but watch. What, what Josiah wanted was somebody to be willing to say, I don't care if you don't like me right now. Because my job is to prepare you, not to be your pal. I have built my career on what I'm about to say. And Chris and I practice this, we agree on this, and we practice this in our home. It's this belief. This is worth writing down. Teenagers and preteens and children. Kids
kids want to respect us more than they want to like us. I'll say it again. Kids want to respect us more than like us. And here's the caveat. If, they, if we're desperately trying to get them to like us, they won't respect us. And if they don't respect us, they'll never like us. So if I want to be friends with somebody, I would come at it like this. Like if I wanted, like Dr. Homer, if I wanted to be his pal, and I kind of feel like we, we know each other from the old days and we've had some great conversations. But if like when I met him, I thought, this guy's cool. And he lives sort of nearby over in Dana or wherever. And so I was like, if I came home and I was like, Kristen, I'm gonna hang, I made, we're going to hang out. This guy's really cool. If we got together, and I, I was like, hey, let's hang out. He's like, cool. And I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I, I like to surf. I would probably go, because I want to be friends, because we're peers. I'd want to go, oh, oh, let's go. I love surfing. Let's do it. We want to surf tomorrow. I wouldn't do this. Oh, surfing. Yeah, yeah, I like surfing, but I'm into soccer. So I tell you what, we're not going to surf today. In fact, I got tickets for the Galaxy. We're going to go watch the Galaxy play today. I bought you some indoor soccer shoes, because later today we're going to play indoor soccer together, and we're going to sit and watch Premier League at night. No, I wouldn't do that. Why? No one wants to be that guy's friend, right? He'd be like, yeah, no. Why? I need to come to him like this, as a peer. I wouldn't come to him like this. And what happens because of all the relationships in our lives, we, we deal with people as peers. And this is the, the shift, the cultural shift that I was talking about earlier. We need to understand that our kids don't want us to be their peer. They need us to be their parent. Which means, if we want intimacy with our kids, we can't be desperately trying to be their best friend. We can't look the other way when they go against something that we have a stand on. Because they will lose respect for us and that will destroy your relationship with your kid. I said I built my career on this and it is this fact. My job, if I'm not speaking to parents or to corporates, people who, I go there to help people who have corporations and those working parents are stressed and they don't talk about it at work but it's affecting their productivity and so I'll go in to where they are because they can't come to a meeting like this and they're too tired to read a book or go to a night meeting. So if I'm not in front of this kind of audience, I'm in front of a school full of people. Yesterday was a middle school, uh, usually, uh, about half the time actually, it's a high school. And, and so when I go into high schools, my job is to have a microphone for an hour with a thousand or two or three thousand kids who don't want to be in the room. That's my job. And so I've learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes. And, and uh, I, but this respect issue is huge. I spoke at a school a number of years ago that was um, third and fourth generation gang kids. It was a really tough school. And um, 3,200 kids, the principal wanted to have four assemblies for the sake of safety. He didn't want a riot to break out. And I talked him into having one assembly and hiring some security guys. I said, that would be best for your school. He's like, well, let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? I said, a kid dies, you know, it's fine. And so, um, no, we don't want to laugh at that. Some of you are rolling your eyes like he really meant that. Anyway, um, I'm probably going to offend somebody. But anyway, watch what happens. Of course, I would never make that joke, but we did the one assembly, and here's what I knew. I knew I was going to be tested right away. And sure enough, it happened. By the way, I also knew, and the reason I was so excited to be involved in this assembly was I knew I was going to be the only Caucasian in the room. And the reason I mention that is because I love, my favorite audiences are audiences of color. And uh, like I speak in Bakersfield pretty much every August, and most of those schools are 85, 92% Hispanic. And I love speaking to those audiences. One kid actually walked in and he went like this. He lowered his collar and he had a gang tattoo on his neck. And he saw me, and obviously I was a speaker guy, and he walks in and he goes, <laughs> hey, what are you gonna do 
about it, buddy. And, but you win that audience, Hispanic audience, over predominantly, and they, I don't know how to explain it. I need to find a better way, but they just, you tell them stories, and you get them laughing, and they just become like children. They become so sweet, so cute, like they'll even poke each other. And you just want to hug them and kiss them on the head. They're just adorable. I love that transition. My favorite audiences are African-American audiences, because those students are huge in their reaction. You win them over, and they laugh. They Literally, they'll stand up and, and lean on each other and go, no! And they're laughing. It's like Friday night at the Apollo. They'll get down in the front row and hit the floor and lean on each other. It's total bedlam, but I love it. You get a bunch of white and Asian students laughing, they're like, oh, very clever. <laughs> I see what you did with that come around, sir. Very clever. So I was excited for this day. I went in, but I knew I'd be tested. And I'm going to tell you this story so that you'll understand how it applies to you and your kids and the issue of respect in your kitchen. What happened that day is a kid, 20 seconds into my first story, stood up, he had a baseball hat on backwards, and I saw the motion, that's why I knew who it was. That's a huge group of humans. He stood up, 20 seconds in, he went, you suck! And everyone laughed. And in my head, I thought, that's a broken window. You see, I think disrespect with children and teenagers is like a broken window. Malcolm Gladwell talks about a study of sociological uh, belief called the broken window theory in one of his books. And the way it goes is this. If you're in charge of an urban area and a window gets broken, you better fix that window because if you don't, pretty soon all the windows are going to get broken. Those small crimes will lead to larger crimes. Well, it's controversial, but Giuliani, when he became mayor of New York, really believed this. He went in and he told his chief of police and people were, oh, so upset about it. He said, I want all the resources we can to go to these five things. People jumping the turnstile to get into the subway for free, the squeegee man who washed windows at red lights and forced people to pay, public urination, graffiti, and any vandalism to keep your eye open for broken windows. You track large and small, and small crime in New York at that point, and it dropped to a historical low and stayed that way for 12 years. Now, I don't know what I think about the broken window theory, but I do know this. I do know that when it comes to teenagers, when there's disrespect, preteens, when there's disrespect, that we better deal with that. And that day I had to deal with that because if I didn't deal with that broken window, pretty soon all the windows are going to get broken. And so this is how, I used to make the mistake of coming out like a peer, and I would say something like this, oh, I remember going through puberty, and everyone would laugh. And then I'd go, oh, you haven't gone through it yet? Everyone would laugh. And I'd go, just don't interrupt us, please. But that's me doing this. Pretty soon the windows kept broken, breaking. I figured out how to do it. This is how I do it now. I'll, I'll lower the microphone, knowing everyone's going to lean forward to hear what's the guy going to do. And I said, young man, and there's tension in the air. I've been speaking 20 seconds, and there's tension in the air. I used to hate these moments, but I love them now, because I know this is my greatest opportunity to win respect of everyone in that room. I said, young man, look at me with the hat. Look at me. If you interrupt us again, I'm going to stop and I'm going to kick you out, and here's why. I don't care if you listen, it's not going to hurt my feelings, but I'm not going to let you get in the way of the important things I'm going to say and having the people around you hear it. So don't test me, I'll kick you out. Do you understand? Look at me, do you understand? That day he went, whatever. And that was a fine line in the circumstances. I thought, well, I'll give him some grace. I said, okay, but just don't test me, I will kick you out. Went back to my story. Typically, a minute later, I will come back in a situation like that, and I will interrupt myself, and I'll say something like this. Hey, you guys, I just want to stop. Young man with a hat, I just wanted to tell you, man to man, I'm so proud of you for the way you just responded to my discipline with respect. In fact, this might sound corny to you, but would you all clap and thank him for the way he just responded to me? You see what I've done is I've made him the hero of the story. I'm not on his back. I'm on his side. It's not personal. 
And then typically the crowd will clap, the kid will stand up and go, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then as he sits down, the clap, the clapping goes away, I will say, just don't test me. And then I jump back into my story. And it works. I'll tell you why in a second. That day I didn't even have a chance to come back. Because 20 seconds after the first time, he yelled something else. And so what did I have to do? We had to kick him out. It took two full minutes to get him out. The principal finally had to go up there to grab him. I've been speaking 40 seconds completely now. I've disciplined a kid and now I'm kicking him out. You think that would be the end of the world? I tell you this because when that kid was taken out, it happens at least 80% of the time. On the rare occasions I have to kick someone out, that kid was taken out of the gym, the audience broke into applause. At first I thought they were like cheering for him when this started happening <laughs> or making fun of me, but then they leaned forward. No more broken windows. Why? They respect me. Because I'm an adult willing to take a stand on something. But notice what I did. And this is what's good for us in our homes. I gave that kid a bigger reason than my position in his life. I didn't say, hey, I'm a speaker. You don't interrupt when there's a speaker. Or I'm an adult and you don't act that way in an assembly. But that kid has adults in his life he doesn't respect. So that's not going to work. So what did I do? I gave him a bigger reason. And that bigger reason was what? Remember it? I'm not going to let you get in the way of the people around you hearing the important things we're going to say. In our own house, the important reason we give is this. Our job is to prepare you for your future, and every relationship you have in your future is going to be built on respect. And if I allow you to be disrespectful to anyone in our family, I'm not loving you well. So now there's a consequence for your disrespect. Make sense? And, and so, in your relationship with your kid, it's got to be all about respect. I'm going to take the last Few minutes, few minutes here, up until 10:15 or, or earlier, to give you the best thing I have to offer you today, and it's a conversation. Here's the question: Does anyone have a question about anything I've said about it so far? Let me just tell you: When it comes to screens, what I'm about to tell you about will help you, and this will help you remain on your kids' side and not their back. Now, I want you to know: It may sound like what I'm, I'm proposing to you today is this militaristic kind of uh, like general over the soldier kind of an attitude. Please look at my eyes. It is not that at all. We have incredible intimacy in our relationships at home. Brooke literally tells us everything about the boys she likes, about the, what's going on in her life. Caleb talks to us about, he'll get on the phone with Kristen and we'll be driving and he'll go on and on and finally she's like, she's <laughs> I can't get him off the phone and hang up and then she'll go, but, but he's 17 and he's talking to me, right? And so we have great intimacy, but it's definitely not built on us being pals. It's built on us being parents and on a non-child-sending home. By the way, your kids should have chores and they should not be paid for them. Chores are like a little reset button every day in your kid's life that says, the family doesn't exist for you, you exist for the sake of the family. The world doesn't exist for you, you exist for the sake of the world. The most respected longitudinal study in human history was done by Harvard. And they, they studied infancy past midlife. And the adults who, according to their framework, were the most successful and healthy in the later part of their life had something in common when they were children. They all did chores, every one of them did chores when they were kids and were not paid for them. Your kids should get allowance, and it should not be associated with the chores. But they should be allowed to succeed and fail with that allowance money, because that's how they're going to learn to be responsible with money. Um, anyway, so here's the conversation. What do you do if your kid wants more freedom than they're ready for? I was in Canada speaking 
450 parents. This is one of my first speeches. I must not be very good because my wife is walking out. See ya. And so, what, what's going to happen? Um, she's heard it before. So, watch. There's a poster as big as a screen when I walked into the room. It had a picture, a giant picture of my face and the words teenage expert. And I was like, crap. I've only spoken to like 30,000 or 40,000 kids. I was no expert. I thought I got to do my hour and then get out of here. Well, I did my hour. They laughed. They're super nice. They're Canadians. What are they going to do? They say hi and they apologize for everything. So, uh, the sweetest people in the world, the funniest humans in the world, sitting in the front row, like right where you are at the end. I said, well, thank you. They're about to clap. I'm like, yes, I'm getting out of here. This dad in the front went, and I was like, oh no. I said, yes. He said, my daughter's 14. She wants a boyfriend. I don't think she's ready. She's angry and I'm afraid I'm losing her. Am I doing the right thing? 450 parents went like this. <laughs> and I, real, I realized they all had their own version of the same question. What do you do when your teenager wants more freedom than they're ready for? That dad didn't want his daughter to have a boyfriend. So how do you handle that when she really wants one without losing her? I don't remember what I said to that dad. But this last 12 minutes is going to be golden for you. Because that night in the hotel, I remember thinking, I owe that dad more. I'm going to start listening to teenagers so I can find an answer to that. And if you're in the sun and you need to move, there's places where there's no sun, feel free to move, because I know that's brutal. Um, horrible to live where there's so much sun. And so um, I started listening to teenagers. The first thing I heard from teenagers was, dis was discouraging to me. Because I would ask them, by the way, the number one thing teenagers talk to me about is their relationship with their parents. Number two is their relationships with other people, romance or friendships. Parents is the number one thing. So I started asking kids about this freedom issue. And the first thing I learned was that when their parents didn't give them freedom, they felt like their parents didn't trust them. And I knew that was a problem because if you don't feel trusted, you're less likely to be trustworthy, right? And so I was discouraged. But then, I won't even take you through the whole journey. I'll just give you a solution. I'm going to erase this because it's a conversation that you can have. Uh, by the way, this is in the book. There's two conversations I mentioned earlier. We do not have time to get to both of them. The first conversation is a reset conversation. How do you reset a con your relationship with your kid? How do you take it from where it was to where it should be? Um, especially if your kid doesn't even want to sit down and talk to you. Like, whatever, I don't want to talk to you. How do you do that? There's an answer that I, I learned in the book, specifically six things you need to say to your kids and um, they'll be involved in the conversation. It begins with an apology, with you taking responsibility for whatever is out of control in your family, because you're the adult. It's not you against them, it's you saying, hey, we've got to adjust things, change is coming. Anyway, step by step, you're going to test me, I'm not going to take it personal, it's the only way you're going to know where you stand, etc. That's in the book. This conversation I can give you right now, and here it is. We sat Caleb down his 13th birthday at the dining kitchen table and said, Caleb, you just turned 13. He goes, am I in trouble? We said, no, it's your 13th birthday, so we wanted to celebrate. We've got great news. He said, what? I said, Krista and I were both talking, I'll use my voice. I said, Caleb, we want you to have total freedom. He sat up straight and he goes, what? I said, yeah, our goal is the same as your goal. We want you to have total freedom. Freedom. He goes, why? I said, because that would make our lives heavenly. He goes, what? Our lives as parents would be so awesome. If you were so responsible, we didn't have to have any rules or expectations. You were just responsible. I said, it'd be so cool. It'd be good for us, good for you. And we want you to have total freedom as soon as possible. He goes, really? What do I have to do? I said, it's simple. Watch. I said, remember when you were little and I had a piece of paper, I had a bunch of paper. We recycle, so it's okay. I had this piece of paper and in the circle I wrote the word play. I said, Caleb, remember when you were little, we had a fence around the play area. He said, yes. 
I said, why didn't we have that fence? And I drew a picture of a street and wrote the word splat. <laughs> he said, oh, so we wouldn't run in the street and get killed. I said, exactly. I said, do we have a fence around the play area now? He said, no. I said, why? He said, because we're smart enough not to run into the street. I said, exactly. Every expectation we have, this is the key, every expectation we have in your life is like that fence. It's there to protect you and give you opportunity to have joy in life and to protect you from other things. He said, okay. I wanted to make it sink in. So I got a new piece of paper and I drew a new circle. And I said, Caleb, remember in fifth, sixth grade how homework was a pain in the neck for everybody in this family because you hated homework? He'd come home, huh, I've been thinking all day, right? And I don't want to do my homework. Or I forgot to have a vocab. I said, it was a problem, so what do we do? And I wrote the words, homework first. He goes, oh yeah, I had to come home and I had to do my homework before I got to play. I said, well actually you came home, had a snack, then you did your chores, because family first, chores before school, and then you did your homework before you could play. I said, why did we do that? And I wrote the word fail. He said, um, oh, so I wouldn't fail in school. I said, exactly. And then I said, do you still have to do your homework first? You're in eighth grade. He said, no. I said, in fact, you're on the honor roll. He said, yeah. I said, do we even ask you about your homework? He said, sometimes, but not usually. And you do it whenever you want. And you know why? This is the cool part. I erased a little of this, and I said, Caleb, every fence we put up in your life has a gate. And if you show us you're responsible for the freedom you have, we will give you, open that gate and give you more freedom. And I drew a bigger circle, and I wrote the words, more freedom, in that bigger circle. I said, so now you do your homework whenever you want. Why? Because you showed us you were responsible for the freedom you have. So there's a gate in every fence. He goes, can I have an iPhone? <laughs> I got a new piece of paper. And I drew a picture of a circle. And in that circle, I drew a picture of a flip phone. <laughs> I'm sure Caleb was the only kid in Laguna Beach with a flip phone at the time. He hated this flip phone, texting the letter C. One, two, three, right? He hated it so much. <laughs> All his friends had the slide-up phone or the iPhone or whatever. He wanted one so bad. I said, Caleb, you can totally have an iPhone. He goes, what do I have to do? I said, you have to be responsible with this phone. He goes, what do you mean? I said, when we call you, it has to be charged and you have to pick up. The reason you have a phone is so that we can call you. Having a phone is not a right, it is a privilege. And we will take that phone away. He says, well, what if I pay for it? I said, we will take that phone away, even if you pay for it. I said, because why? Because we gave you the food that gave you the nutrition to pick up that phone and bring it to your ear. And that phone is ours. And by the way, your bedroom is not your bedroom. It's my future office and I'm letting you use it for a while. And he smiled. I said, that we totally, you can have that phone. You can't be on it in the morning. You can't walk around with earbuds in, in your ear all the time. If there's other people in the house, in the room, you need to take those earbuds out. Even if you're not talking, you're going to be present. We believe in being present. We're going to limit your screen time. Jakey right now has limited screen time. Brooke and Caleb have earned more freedom in that way. But once in a while, we've got to go, hey, anymore, you just, you've lost balance. Uh, they're not allowed to be on their phone while they're talking to somebody. We don't let them have earbuds or on their phone when we're driving somewhere. Why? Those are when we have the greatest family times together. And we tell them it's because of family. We went on vacation for two weeks a couple summers ago, and we told them, you get an hour of screen time before we go to the beach and an hour later, and that's it every day for the next two weeks. Caleb was like, what? And he got so frustrated. And, and, and then I said, why are you so mad, Caleb? This is family time. He goes, well, I like listening to music when I go to bed. And I listened, we listened, and I said, you know what, you're right, buddy. I tell you what, if you're listening to music after the lights are out and you're not on the screen, that's fine. Because that's how he does it. I said, but you can't wake up and be on that screen. 
You get it two hours a day. At the end, they reported to us it was the best family vacation we've ever had. We played games, we sat around and talked. We had a pellet gun, we were shooting targets in the backyard. It was an awesome time. Screens get in the way of intimacy. Anyway, um, we can't control it because we're the parent, not the peer. So I said, oh, Kayla, one last thing. We're almost done. I said, I drew a dollar sign. He said, what does that mean? Brooke had joined the conversation, by the way. We said, you can't talk. We're talking to your brother, but you can listen. And he goes, what does a dollar mean? I said, you have to pay for the phone. He goes, I do? How much is that going to cost? It says 650 bucks. That's what it was at the time. He goes, I don't have that kind of money. I said, we've been giving you allowance, birthday money. Brooke goes, I have $822. <laughs> she loves saving, the potential of buying things. Which brings up an important point. Freedom is not about a magical age. A younger child might earn freedom that an older child has not earned yet. Why? Because it's not based on your age. It's based on you showing us you're ready for the freedom you already have. The beautiful thing about this is it's not us arbitrarily giving or taking away freedom. It's about their behavior. They are in charge of this freedom. It means it's not adversarial. It means we're on your side. Literally, we want you to have total freedom. We are cheering for you to show us you can handle this so you can get more freedom. Because when you turn 18, there's not going to be any more fencing. Make sense? So you can't be mad at us for lack of freedom. But we as parents need to be willing to give them freedom. And that's just the part of preparing them that is scary. Because we, it's scary, you know, to toss your kid to car keys. Right? Um, but Brooke recently lost her phone. Or she was almost going to lose her phone. And we talked to her. And I said, Brooke, you're almost 15 and a half. You can't be, deal with this phone. And Kristen actually said the first part. You can't be responsible for this phone. How do you think we're going to let you have a car to drive? And I said, you expect me to get my body, the only body I have, into a car that we purchased, that you don't own, and sit in the passenger seat and let you have the key and the steering wheel in like two weeks? If you can't handle the phone, the, the car thing ain't happening, right? And why? Because she's got to earn the freedom to be responsible, to gain greater responsibility. So Caleb went across the street and worked that following Saturday for the lady across the street. Are we recording this? We, oh yeah, she's a great woman. And so, she uh, needed some yard work to be done. Thank you. And, and uh, so, Caleb went over and worked for five hours and made 50 bucks that following Saturday. He was on his way to his iPhone. This is the key. He got his iPhone. And this is the conclusion but the most important part of this whole thing. He got his iPhone. And he was excited. You want to motivate your kid towards something? Freedom is the greatest thing they need. This sentence is probably the most important one I'm going to say. Teenagers and preteens need the hope that they can affect the amount of freedom they have in their life. They need the hope that they can influence the amount of freedom they have. Because if they don't feel they can influence, that will lead to rebellion. It's like dancing with them and they don't want to dance anymore. You're like, no, no, stick to those dance. I'm going to control everything. They're eventually going to push your way through a rebellion. Caleb got his iPhone, but here's the trick. Brooke came home a little later and said, guess what Caleb's friends told me? I said, what? She said, Caleb's in leadership class, been taking his iPhone, telling the teacher he doesn't feel good, going into the bathroom, sitting in the stall, playing Madden football for 20 minutes. She goes, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm not being on tablet, but I'm thrilled to have the information. She goes, can I listen? I said, yes, but I do it from the other side of the living room. Caleb walked in. I said, how's school? He goes, good. I said, how's leadership? He goes, good. I said, how's Madden football? Did Brooke tell you? He exploded. Did you know that the part of the human brain that's open to persuasion literally shuts down when you're angry and defensive for 20 minutes? 
Lectures don't work for teenagers, consequences do. Lectures are white noise, they're not even taking it in. So they just know how to nod and smile until you shut up and they get back to their life. Lectures don't work. Have you ever lectured your kid over and over about the same thing? It's proof, lectures don't work, consequences do. So I said, Caleb, go to your room and I'll be in in 22 minutes. So once his brain had calmed down, well, he needed more time that day and this is the key here. I said, Caleb, it's funny that you're madder at your sister than you are at yourself. He said, why? I said, because lying is non-negotiable in our family and you lied to your teacher, you lied to the kids in your class, you lied to us through hiding this. And the beautiful thing that happened next was Caleb reached into his pocket, took out his iPhone, I didn't have to ask him and he handed it to me. Why? Because we have taught our kids, this is a culture, we use this language, that the gates swing both ways. And if you earn a freedom, and then you show you're not ready for it, you lose that freedom. Right? And the beautiful thing about this is we don't have to freak out when our kids screw up. Because it's just a mistake. You know, it's just a mistake. So we get to say, ah, you earned that freedom. We're really proud of you for that. But now you've shown you're not ready for it yet. So we'll just back you through that gate. You'll lose that freedom for a while. But this is key. We will give you every chance to regain our trust. We'll give you every chance. We don't need to lecture them. You've broken our trust. How can I ever trust you again? We need to give them the hope that they can win that trust back. And we've taught our kids, and thank God for all the chances I have to listen to teenagers because they're the ones who taught me this. We've taught our kids the best way to regain a freedom you've lost is by how, handle, how you handle the loss of that freedom. It tells us a lot about whether you're ready to regain it. For Caleb, it's not about the phone, it's about the lying. Brooke lost her phone because she lied. She was on Instagram, supposed to be doing homework. She lied that she was on it. She lost her phone. She, she wasn't as smart as Caleb back then. She is now. Caleb didn't say, how long are you going to keep my phone? Because he knew that it would have been longer if he asked that, because that's about the phone. And then the whole eight days he didn't have a phone, he didn't say a word about it. Brooke, we took her phone away. And, and the first thing she said, how long are you going to keep it? And I was like, cha-ching, more now. You know, it's going to be a little longer. And then I came to Brooke and I said, Brooke, why didn't we take away your phone a few days later? She goes, because I'm on Instagram? I said, no. Think again, because there's more to it. And then she walked through the house like this. Well, I don't know what my friends are doing this weekend because we communicate through Snapchat and this and then all the social life. And we realized it wasn't, in her mind, it was all about the phone until she could sit down and, I, and we said, why did you lose your phone? And she was able to say, well, you know what, I lied to you. And I also shouldn't have been on the phone when I was. I gave it too much power. When she could put it into her own words like that, and we're like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're gonna watch your behavior and let you re-earn the phone. Does that make sense? Um, I could go on and on for hours. I literally have the next four books outlined in my head. Um, I want you to know, if you go to Hope, there's free videos online um, on Facebook. We've created a Facebook page for you. Um, we're not trying to sell you anything. There's lots of little two to three minute videos. Um, and if you just go to hopeforparents.com, that's my corporate site for the work I do with corporations. But if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see the social media. Hit the Facebook button. Hopeforparents.com, hopeforparents.com. That's where you'll find that Facebook page. And there's one video on there you're gonna want because it, it, I made it so you can show it to your kids. And it's about this. It's two and a half minutes. Why their words are not the most important thing when they talk to us. It's not about the words. It's about body language, face expression, tone of voice. You ever have your kids say, what? 
and you go, don't talk to me like that, and they go, I just say not. <laughs> well, this video will give you a framework to talk to them about it. All right? The book, by the way, has that other conversation and lots more stuff we couldn't get to today. Um, just so you know how the book works, it's $13 for one. It's If you want to buy a second copy for someone who's not here today, I'll sell it to you for $7. So, but don't get in cahoots with somebody. Here's 10 bucks. I'll see you in the parking lot. I mean, it's only to help us spread the word. That second book, I'll actually, I'll be outside. I'll sign it for you to make it worth 25 more cents at the garage sale. And the chapters are short enough for men to read on the toilet before their legs go numb. Okay? We take credit card and check and cash. And if you don't have any money, talk to me. We'll find a way to get you the book. Coffee Talk, this is a beautiful thing you do. Thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful. And uh, that's it. You guys, thank you so much. Let's get out of here.